Hi, my name is Joe, and I want to tell you about my podcast that I host called Still Unknown, an unsolved true crime podcast. Every other Monday, I talk about a different unsolved murder, disappearance, or unexplained death in hopes that telling these stories will someday bring out the answers that these cases are desperately seeking. You can listen to Still Unknown wherever you are listening to this podcast here. And who knows, you may even be able to reveal the final pieces to help solve a case. So subscribe now to Still Unknown to hear a new case every other Monday, and let's try to solve some mysteries together. Welcome to Forensic Miles. This is Miles. Hey guys, it's Sean. And we've got a good case for you today. Today we're going to be covering um, the Forensic Files episode, If I Were You, which is about the murder of Paul Gruber. Um, And before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about my super exciting trip that I just took to New York. Um, I had the opportunity to watch the Forensic Files premiere before it was aired. Um, So I saw it on, I don't know, what was that? Thursday? Thursday. Yeah. Um, And it was super exciting. I got to meet a whole bunch of really amazing podcasters um, and people in the true crime community. So if you want to check those people out, I have them linked on that picture of me um, in my Instagram account. And I'll also write their accounts um, in this episode. All right. Um, Also, I wanted to say I really want to hear your thoughts on the new Forensic Files premiere forensic files Two. yeah give us that feedback yeah we can we really liked it um and we were really excited obviously you know you can't replace peter thomas there's no way to replace peter thomas and they weren't trying to replace peter thomas so i'm really excited to see what bill has to offer um i think also like it's just going to take some time before we're used to his voice. Mm-hmm, for sure. Because we're just so used to like falling asleep to Peter. <laughs> and yeah, falling asleep to him in the back or in the background. So I think we'll get used to it. Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited. I'm very excited for all the new episodes. Um, so please tell us what you guys think. All right. Let's get into it. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on our social media accounts. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Forensic Miles, Miles of the Y. In January of 1994, Shelly Kepley said goodbye to her father after spending the Christmas holidays together in Lake Tahoe. Her father, Paul Gruber, headed back to his home in Muskrat Lake, Sandpoint, Idaho. In the weeks following his visit, Shelly tried to get in touch with him and really was not able to have any luck. She called and she called and she was never able to get in touch with him on the phone. And I'll be honest, I don't know if this is because I watch true crime or because of technology and cell phones these days, but if I'm not able to get in touch with my family or you within like, I don't know. I can vouch for this. An hour, I'll automatically think that something horrible is wrong. 
Shelley started to immediately worry too. It was really uncharacteristic of her father not to return phone calls. Um, So so she was immediately kind of concerned that something was wrong. Um, Paul had recently moved to Muskrat Lake. Um, He was a retired school teacher and he had worked for 22 years at Incline High School, which is near Lake Tahoe. He had inherited some money and retired, bought a house on Lake Muskrat or Muskrat Lake. And in an interview with Forensic Files, Shelley said that she could really understand why he wanted to move to Muskrat, the Muskrat Lake area. She said it reminded them of Lake Tahoe, and it was a really slow-paced sort of a town, which she felt really appealed to her father as he was kind of, you know, getting older and wanting to spend his days kind of relaxing. Sounds nice to me. Yeah. In February of 1994, when she still hadn't gotten in touch with her father, Shelley started to get really, really worried, and she had good reason. After not speaking with her father in weeks, a birthday letter arrived in the mail for Shelley's son, but something didn't feel quite right to her. She said in an interview, in the same interview with Forensic Files, that a red flag immediately went up because the note inside was very short and not very affectionate. And that was not like her father at all. She went as far as to pull out old birthday cards and compare handwriting and his signature. And it's a good thing, too, because as far as she could tell, they didn't match. Like, it, this handwriting was completely unfamiliar with her. And, I mean, I'm sure, like all of us, we can immediately recognize our parents' handwriting. Oh, yeah. Like, immediately, I know. Oh, mom. Oh, yeah. I can spot my dad's handwriting from my way especially i mean you've grown up with it for so long so obviously you'd be able to recognize it um so she decided to call the local muskrat lake police department um, and have them go and check on her father and what they found was extremely concerning police went to the home on gypsy bay road and although there were no signs of a break-in the house was completely empty All of his clothes were missing, his guns, a computer, a TV, and most shocking, many of his personal papers were nowhere to be found. So it was almost like... Just like vanished? He vanished. Where did all of his stuff go? Now, the timeline of these findings aren't super clear, but it was only a few weeks after the initial investigation started that Paul's brand new truck was discovered abandoned with the keys still in the ignition. Hmm. In March, Paul's cell phone is found on the side of the road. And Shelly, you know, she knows something's wrong and she's not seeing the results that she wants to see. So she does something which I find absolutely amazing. She sets a trap. She calls her father's phone and she leaves a message. This is his home phone when people still had home phones. Um, Wow. Yeah. Um, She leaves him a message reminding him to send money for her husband's birthday. And then she waits to see what comes of it. Sure enough, five days after leaving the message, a letter arrives in her mailbox. The letter is addressed to her husband And it's a birthday card with a check for $25. Obviously, this whole message that Shelly left was a complete lie. She knew her father had never promised to send money, and it wasn't even her husband's birthday. And, you know, this is stuff that she knew her father would have known. It's, like, weird, too, that they just, like, no communication, and then it's just, like, 
there. Well, clearly somebody, whether it's her father or somebody else, is listening to these messages. They're just not calling her back. Yeah. Um, so now she is 100% sure something absolutely horrible has happened to her father. And the investigation kind of starts to move forward. A handwriting analysis was done um, comparing the letters and the check that was sent, um, you know, since she kind of felt like he was he had disappeared. So after January um, and they were compared to letters and checks that were written before January that were absolutely known to be Paul's handwriting. Um, the investigators said that they matched. That, wow. They said that the handwriting was consistent with both the letters known to be Paul and the ones that, that Shelly wasn't quite sure. But Shelly and her family knew for a fact that this was not their, that this was not his writing. They felt it in their gut and they knew that something was absolutely wrong. So they didn't stop searching. Shelly or Shelly decided to do more investigating. Police discovered that Paul or somebody was still paying his bills and um, paying them on time, paying them in full. And they also discovered that somebody was going to the ATMs to get money out. Um, and they were doing this sometimes up to twice a day. Oh, wow. So they had discovered that between $25,000 and $30,000 had been withdrawn in total from Paul's account. How how long is that over? Uh, about a couple months. January. Yep. Um, uh, but this person was not a dummy. It, so it could have been luck, but I don't think so. Like this person was not a dummy. Every single ATM that they went to didn't have a camera. So there was no solid, at this point, there was no solid proof that Paul wasn't taking the money out oh. or that he wasn't the person there because at this point they've got, the letters that quote unquote match and he's taking money out of his account and he's paying all of his bills on time. Yeah. I mean, nothing out of the blue, really. Shelly was not going to take that as an answer though. And she was not going to give up. She needed to know where her father was. If he's like paying his stuff on time and getting his messages, couldn't she like, they just do a stakeout of his house. Yes, I think so. But at this point, the police really didn't think that there was anything wrong. I mean, they they noticed that there was something going on, but they didn't really know what to do about it. So probably, but they didn't do that. Mm. Um, But she had an idea. And she decided to call the post office and ask who was coming to pick up her father's mail. And they finally got a clue. A silhouette of a man going to Paul's mailbox was caught on camera, and it was not Paul. So they've officially found some evidence that this is not Paul doing at least some of – he's at least not picking up his own mail. Um, Exactly. And, I, you know, I think this says a lot about intuition too and listening to your gut because even though all of the evidence was – you know, kind of pointing to the fact that Paul was fine and not setting off any, like, too many red flags to the investigators. Shelly knew in her gut that something was wrong, and she did not stop looking. So 
what they found on this recording was a silhouette. It wasn't really, there was no face. It was just kind of like the outline of this person's body. Um, but when they posted it, immediately local residents felt that they recognized the man. And I think this might be because it was a small town. People knew each other. Um, And they said that it looked a lot like a man named Daryl Robin Cool. Daryl had a connection to Paul, um, which is interesting. He had been working for him and actually admitted that he had been going to pick up Paul's mail. He said, yeah, you know, I'm picking it up because Paul – Asked me to go and pick up his mail. He said that Paul had gone on a trip to Canada and he needed somebody to pick up his mail. And, you know, Daryl, being the nice guy that he is, agreed to do this favor for him. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just mail. Just mail. And this is where things start to get even more wonky. Police bring Daryl in for questioning and they hand him a photo of Paul. And believe it or not, Daryl says he has never seen that man in his life and he does not recognize him at all. Oh my gosh. He says that the man that he knows to be Paul is not the man that is shown in these pictures. What? He's insinuating that somehow there is an imposter pretending to be Paul. So investigators are kind of like, um, what? (laughs) And they say, okay, you've seen this quote unquote imposter Paul. So tell us what he looks like and we'll do a sketch. So the sketch artist makes a sketch of this imposter and it is posted everywhere in the town, but not a single person recognizes the imposter Paul. Over the next few months, there is no sign, absolutely no sign of the real Paul. No phone calls, no more letters, no nothing of the real Paul. What's happened with um, Daryl during this time? He's released. Um, So there is no sign of the real Paul. There is no sign of the imposter Paul. But investigators continue to search and keep an eye on the property, even though you know, they're still not 100% sure that anything is wrong with the real Paul. I mean, maybe Paul is into something weird. Maybe he hired somebody to be his imposter and pretend that it was him and take over his whole life. He's got a secret background and teachers just his front. (laughs) I don't know. There are options, I suppose. However, there was one investigator that had some had a feeling and he kept going back to something that he saw in the house when they did that initial investigation. It was a small rug, a rug that had been glued to the floor. Glued? Like super glued? Like super glued to the floor. And for good reason too. They decide to go back, and after pulling the rug up, investigators find a strange mark on the floor. After testing it um, for gunshot residue, police conclude that the mark had been made by a ricocheting bullet. What? Mm-hmm. Then they decide to do one of our favorite tests, a forensic file's favorite, favorite, a luminol test. And when they did... Everything underneath that rug 
glowed. The blood was tested and it came back positive match to the real Paul Gruber. But without a body, there's still no way to really prove that he was dead. Now, like I said in the beginning, I f- the timeline of this is a little bit wonky. And I found two versions of it. Um, but in the Forensic Files episode, they didn't mention this at all. And I found an article um, online from a website called aboutforensics.co.uk where it mentions that investigators were immediately suspicious of Daryl. So like right after the initial interview. Either way, whether they were you know immediately suspicious or became suspicious, Daryl became begins to move higher up on their suspect list, even though they're still looking for this imposter Paul that he described. Did the did the imposter Paul um, match? Oh wait, no, they didn't see him at the ATMs. Nope, there were no video footage at all from any of these ATMs. But investigators start to look at Daryl's bank records, and they immediately find something of interest. Daryl was depositing large sums of money into his own personal bank account, and these sums of money perfectly matched to the withdrawals that were coming out of Paul's bank account. But Daryl, of course, had an explanation for this, too. He claimed that he was transferring the money to his own account so that he could pay Paul's bills because Paul asked him to pay his bills while Paul was in Canada. And let's remember, the Paul that he knows is Imposter Paul. It's not even the real Paul. It is Imposter Paul. This is getting crazy. Yes. But this time, police aren't really buying it. Um, And they decide to go back to the birthday cards that this imposter had sent to Shelly and bring them to a new examiner. And this time they came back as inconsistent. And he said that Paul had not written the notes. So now we're getting onto something. Now we've got some real evidence that we can compare to Daryl or imposter Paul. If we ever find him. (laughs) And that is exactly what they did. They compare the handwriting to Daryl. Cool. And guess what? Matched. We've got a match. And after they get this match, they go and they search his property. And they find a horrifying collection of stuff. Although Daryl had a wonderful reputation in the town as a family man and a Mormon. Oh, um, by the way, he has seven children. Seven. Seven? Seven children. Wow. They find a hidden door in his house, which revealed a collection of throwing stars, swords, and military gear. They also find a ton of property that belonged to Paul, including a boat. They, like, find Paul's boat. On Daryl's property. property? Yes. Oh, wow. How did he get the boat there? I have no idea. But that wasn't all. They find a 22 caliber. Caliber. They find a 10 22 caliber handgun with a homemade silencer. 
Daryl is not arrested at that time, though. In August 1995, detectives ask a jailer who worked part-time as a carpenter and had actually worked on Paul's home before he owned it to accompany them um, and check the grounds and see if there were any alterations made that could possibly be hiding a body. And they find something. Under the house, there was an impression that hadn't been there before. Over the many months of the investigation, the ground had settled. Upon digging on this spot, investigators discovered what seemed to be an air mattress and rolled up inside was the body of Paul Gruber. He had been shot four times with a 22 caliber handgun. Oh. Mm-hmm. Jeez. After examination, it was found that the bullets did not match the handgun or the silencer owned by Daryl Cool. So sort of a step back there. Um, and even though they weren't a, but even though they weren't able to match the gun to Daryl, um, they did have something else. The stamps that were used to send the letters to Shelly and her family. These were like lick on stamps? Lick on stamps. So a perfect place to get the DNA. And upon the examination of the DNA, it matched Daryl. In May of 1996, he was put under arrest and charged with murder. Almost as soon as he was in jail, he was plotting to get out, like immediately. An inmate inmate testified that Daryl said he would pay him and give him a car if he killed the prison officers who were supposed to take him out of the jail. What? Yes. But the officers were on to him, and they even told him that they knew about about his plot to kill them. And they said that Daryl looked like all the blood had just drawn out of his, you know, entire body. Um, Daryl, I mean, he must have felt really dumb. This inmate, who also happened to be Daryl's cellmate, had told or had had testified at the trial that Daryl had planned to kill the investigators on the case. Um, And the cellmate also knew like details about this case that nobody but the real killer would have known. So he was really a good person to have on this, on the prosecution side. The prosecutors believe that Daryl had planned to kill Paul and take his money out of greed. And um, I don't know what else, just greed. He wanted what Paul had. I mean, Paul was living a very relaxing, very comfortable financially life. Um, And Daryl had seven Seven kids kids. (laughs) and wasn't really, you know, doing so well financially. So he wanted what Paul had. Paul had trusted Daryl and hired him as a handyman around the house. But Daryl took advantage of him and Paul's kindness and friendliness had ended up in his death. During his three-week trial in 1997, Daryl claimed his innocence, sticking to his original claim that although he was found with all Paul's property, had been found to have taken the money out of his account, had gone to the mail or the post office and picked up his mail, he had never actually met the real Paul and only the quote-unquote imposter and that the imposter was the one that had had killed Paul. That's just like such an elaborate plot going on inside his own head. Seriously. 
Um, and But, you know, his lawyer was behind him. Um, and even when it, as far as to say that, you know, Daryl had been framed by this imposter guy who had planned to, to frame so him saying, all along. Somebody else killed Paul and then was just, Daryl was just taking all of Paul's stuff. And not being like, huh, wonder why I'm just taking all Paul's stuff. Yeah, and this imposter Paul never got anything from this at all. Yeah. Okay, imposter Paul does, he doesn't exist. <laughs> the state had asked for the death penalty for this case, um, stating that Cool exhibited utter disrespect for human life and was motivated by greed. The jury didn't believe. Daryl's story, and they found him guilty of first-degree murder, as well as charged him with counts of forgery and grand theft. Um, they did not agree with the state, however, and Daryl was sentenced to 25 to life in prison. Over the years, Daryl had appealed his conviction, stating that, quote-unquote, his attorney erred in f- by failing to argue that there was insufficient evidence to sustain the jury's verdict. All of these appeals were have since been denied. On June 19th, 1997, Daryl wrote a letter to the Bonner County Daily Bee where he said, I was framed and false things have been used against me and the real killer or killers are indeed still free and among you. Daryl is currently in prison at the Idaho Correctional Center and will be eligible for parole in 2034. Um, and he'll be 84 years old at that time. Hmm. Um, one interesting little tidbit that I found um, was that the original investigators actually thought that the sketch of the imposter looked a lot like the artist who was doing the uh, sketch. I'm surprised it didn't actually look like, I don't know, I feel like when that happens, you almost describe yourself. Yourself? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, like in so the office? Up, yeah. <laughs> In addition to being covered in forensic files, this case was also covered in Discovery Channel's New Detectives and Oxygen's Buried in the Backyard, which came out in 2019, so only last year. Well, that was quite a roller coaster. That was a whirlwind for me. That was a whirlwind, um, and we hope that you enjoyed this episode. We will be back next Thursday with another episode, which will be a tight leash. So if you want to go out and watch that forensic file episode um we will be covering that one next week get a head start yeah do your homework yes we are so excited that you were here this week to join us um and we can't wait for our next episode see you guys later bye